0: Welcome to Socialist Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. I'm your host, Ty Moore. For this episode, we've brought together four candidates for DSA's National Political Committee, each of whom are hoping to be among the 16 NPC members elected this August at the Chicago National Convention of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're going to dig into the sharp debates and controversies that have surrounded DSA's electoral work over the last several years, and hear each NPC candidate talk about their proposals to change and develop DSA's electoral strategy. There are 41 candidates for the National Political Committee, which is the highest elected body between DSA's biannual national conventions. The political makeup of the team elected to lead the largest socialist organization in the US is arguably the most important decision the convention will take. Yet even within DSA, too often we default to the dominant norms of US political culture, reducing political debate to sound bites and gotcha moments on social media. This default is inevitable if we fail to create opportunities for substantive dialogue. In the spirit of a more engaged democratic process, This extended episode of Socialist Sound features a far more in-depth discussion over how DSA can address one of our central challenges, building a powerful yet accountable socialist electoral project. In May, Seattle DSA voted to officially nominate two candidates for the National Political Committee, both of whom we have on the show today. Amy Wilhelm is co-chair of Seattle DSA and a trans-Marxist born and raised in Seattle. Amy's background is in tenant organizing and they're a member of the Marxist Unity Group, a DSA caucus. Amy is fighting for a DSA that will stand resolutely against the capitalist class and the state and that will prepare the working class to fight and win power in society. Amy, welcome to Socialist Sound.
1: Thanks, Ty. Glad to be here.
0: Philip Locker is a longtime socialist organizer and member of the Seattle Education Association. He helped lead the fight to win the $15 minimum wage in Seattle, the first major city to do so. Philip recently completed a term as co-chair of Seattle DSA and is a member of the Reform and Revolution Caucus. Welcome, Philip. Thanks so much for having me on. We also have two NPC candidates from other chapters joining us. Alex Pelletieri is a Bread and Roses candidate for the NPC. He is from New York City DSA, where he has served as a campaign manager for a DSA endorsed candidate, he served on the Socialists in Office Committee and helped start a, DSA, a YDSA chapter. Very glad you could join us, Alex, despite the time zone challenges. I appreciate you giving us your Friday night to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Sam Hefluthi is a former co-chair of DSA San Francisco and the secretary of uh, California DSA and a member of the Red Star Caucus. He served as DSA San Francisco's Electoral Strategy Commission in 2021 and was a staff organizer for the chapter's People First San Francisco ballot measure campaign. He grew up in Capitol Hill uh, in Seattle as a former summer fellow intern with Washington Bus and a reporting intern uh, with the Capitol Hill Seattle, which I'm sure many of our listeners read. Welcome to the show, Sam. Uh, excited to be back in town, at least virtually. Very good. Well, welcome all of you to the show. I'll just mention that we also reached out to a couple NPC candidates from the Socialist Majority Caucus, but they were unable to join. Before getting into the discussion, I want to remind listeners that this podcast is only possible because hundreds of Seattle DSA members and supporters are contributing monthly to sustain my part-time position as a chapter's communications organizer. To make this work possible, to continue this podcast, we still need to increase the chapter's income by over 1500 a month. With your support, we can continue to develop a strong social media here in Seattle. Please go to seattledsa.org podcast and sign up as a monthly sustainer today. So let's uh, get into our discussion. The question of DSA's electoral strategy has remained the most hotly debated and widely discussed issue within the organization for much of the last decade, certainly since the massive influx of young people in 2016 and the years following that transformed DSA into the organization it is today. The 2019 convention voted to break from DSA's longstanding strategy of working primarily to transform the Democratic Party, the so-called realignment strategy, and to instead embrace the dirty break strategy to set the long-term goal of building a new mass working class political party. However, that debate is still very much a live uh, discussion, and many would argue that in practice, the politics of realignment still dominate much of DSA's electoral work. Over the last couple of years, we've seen the high-profile controversy around DSA Congress member Jamal Bowman's vote to fund Israel's Iron Dome military defense system, and more recently the votes of Bowman, AOC, and Cory Bush in favor of Biden's rotten deal to break the railway strike, with Rashida Talib as the sole DSA member in Congress voting against the bill. There are, of course, plenty of other examples at all levels of government of dsa endorsed electeds, capitulating under pressure, often to avoid coming into conflict with their Democratic Party colleagues, and taking votes and positions that are clearly not what most DSA members want or in violation of DSA's platform. There are a number of organizational proposals being discussed to address these challenges. A bunch of different resolutions and amendments for the August National Convention, which I hope we'll have a moment to touch on later. But let's begin by zooming out a bit. In each of your views and the views of your caucus, what should be the general goals of DSA's electoral work? What should be the role of socialists in office? And you know, how would you like to see DSA's political approach to our electoral work change in the years ahead? Philip, why don't we begin with you? Okay, um, I think you pointed to I think the, un, the the most important underlying
2: question is, you know, what is our conception of our of the role that we have as socialists in electoral politics? Um, and I think that you know I think that's the heart of the matter. Where I would just take a step back and say, you know, I think we should be clear what the dominant model is is in our society, which I think we need a very different model as socialists. But that is that change happens through the formal legislative process and that's a candidate or politician-centered process. Um, I think as socialists, we have a very uh, completely different, or I would advocate that we have a completely different model. I think, uh, unfortunately, DSA has not uh, done that enough and we've slipped into the more dominant uh, paradigm, but I think our model should be the engine of change is mass struggle and the role of electeds is important. It's quite important, but it's to be, it's to be used, to use their campaigns and their offices once, if they're elected, as a platform to speak to workers and other marginalized people outside the, the, the legislatures that they're elected to, to raise to speak to them, to try to elevate and raise their consciousness around key demands and, and issues that we're fighting on, to organize, uh, to use their platform and access to the media to promote protests, solidarity with, with, different, with workers and different people in struggle, with strikes, and to use their position and authority to urge supporters to, to join and recruit to DSA and mass working class organizations like unions and other left formations. Um, and, and overall to have a message of, um, that, of, of uh, a clear message of militant opposition to the billionaire class and big business to draw out, you know, our message as socialists is that the key dividing line in society is between working people and the owners of capital, the ruling class, and all those who are oppressed and exploited under this system. And that's not heard in mainstream politics, but that's the message we wanna get across. So and it also means, you know, under normal politics, organizations endorse a politician and then they decide what they're going to say about different issues. I think we want a very different uh, democratic model where we want candidates and politicians who are acting as representatives of our organization, DSA, where we collectively democratically decide our our positions, our message on key issues, obviously with discussion and collaboration and, um, and input. With our elected politicians and candidates but it happens as a democratic process not them on their own deciding after we endorse them you know i think we can be very flexible about endorsements but i think the strategic priority is to run and elect our own dsa representatives we can be flexible in terms of endorsing people who are not prepared to represent us i think we can do that like bernie sanders running for president was not representing he's not a, a representative of dsa but I think we, our strategic goal is to find our own members we can run who will act as spokespeople, as champions for our organization, promote our campaigns, initiatives. Um, so just the last thing I'll, I'll just say about that is just, I think, unfortunately, I think the reality is that's not that model is not the case that's dominant in DSA's electoral politics. I think a large majority of DSA candidates do not stand out as distinctly as socialists, but more often sort of appear as sort of more militant left-wing versions of the dominant progressive politics on, uh, on, on the, in uh, left electoral politics, where they end up echoing the message and politics of, of the progressive. I mean, a good example is they're all associated with the progressive caucus in Congress, and there's no socialist caucus. The progressive message about baking, breaking up the banks and big tech companies, that's echoed by our DSA members in Congress versus a socialist message of public ownership. On the war on Ukraine, what's the socialist message? We're just hearing uh, the message of the progressive caucus. Um, there's not a class struggle messaging. Um, so, and we saw that, as you said, on, you know, the the votes you highlighted. So the last thing I would just say about that is just with accountability. I think the other thing is that's related when we have electeds who break our core principles. What do we expect from DSA? I think, I think the dominant position of our outgoing NPC was they, they didn't like those votes you referred to, but they didn't want to make a big uh, deal about it. They want to move on. They thought it was embarrassing. I think we need a different policy where we have open discussion, public clarification and debate and not sort of brush over when those uh, things happen.
0: Thanks, Philip. You said a lot there, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to dig into some of that more. But, Alex, why don't we hear your views on the subject? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, so I think the goal of DSA's electoral work should be to eventually break from the Democrats and form a Workers' Party. And I think that every, everything that we do should be in service uh, to that goal. And we're at a point where we have over 100 uh, DSA members who are elected officials across the country. Um, you know, this is like the most exciting time to be a socialist involved in electoral politics, maybe in the last 60 or 70 years. And for the first time in decades, we're in a position to move beyond talking about a Workers' Party in a theoretical way, like, oh, it would be a nice idea to have one day, to actually beginning to take concrete steps to make that happen. Um, and I think that there's two main things that need to happen that I hope that this MPC can really be a driving force behind um, for over the next two years. So I think that we need to create an independent socialist identity. Our goal should be for people to view elections as a competition between like a, a Democrat, a Republican, uh, and a socialist. And I think that the way that we can do that is by having DSA candidates explicitly highlight themselves as socialists but also contrast themselves from the democratic candidate by saying that the democratic party has always been the party of capital has always been the party of your boss of your landlord um and i as the socialist am the and a, am a candidate of the working class because ultimately right now i think that you know most people even if there is a dsa candidate in the race view these elections as a a Democrat versus a Republican, maybe like a slightly more left Democrat or a slightly less bad Democrat, but still a Democrat versus a Republican. And I think it's our job to get people to view elections as a competition between the wealthy 1% and working people and to get them to realize that the wealthy 1% have two parties and that we need one of our own. But once we do have people in office, we, you know, we have to make sure that they remain accountable to DSA. And I definitely agree with Phil that there's is dominant, or maybe you know, a big tendency in DSA where people who think that the goal of socialists in office should be to pass legislation that helps working people, um, and you know, may it, like it doesn't really matter how we do that. Maybe uh, it means that we're a little friendlier with leadership. Maybe we um, temper. Our socialist politics, you know, we we cozy up to the right people, but our main goal is just to pass social like progressive legislation, and and that's not an approach that I agree with. I don't think that's an approach that builds socialism. Instead, I think that socialists should be organizers first, um, and legislators second. And I think that the the job of socialists in office. Um, is to organize masses of people, create mass movements uh, to pass these legislations, and to work with DSA, um, to agitate against capitalism, uh, capital, which oftentimes is manifested through the leadership of the Democratic Party or the leadership, like a speaker of, of uh, a state legislator. And I think that we should be aware that you know agitating against these people will bring serious repercussions that probably no other elected official will, will ever face. And I think that that's really where the role of uh, the DSA chapter comes in, to make sure that we're not just electing people and then they go off and they fight these battles on their own, that we are supporting them, that we are providing them with the political cover to really uh, be uh, representatives for socialism um, in, in public office.
0: I just have one follow-up, because I think you painted a bit of a contrast that I agree with fundamentally, that... You know, the main job of socialists is not just to legislate progressive reforms, but to be organizer in office, a movement builder, a builder of the socialist movement. But are those things necessary? And in contrast, I think frequently, you know, my read of history is oftentimes the best movement builders in office can actually get the reforms through by turning up the heat on, on their colleagues, their Democratic and mm-hmm. Republican colleagues. What, what do you think about that?
3: Um, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I don't think they're in contrast. um, but I think that there tends to be an over focus on the legislation, where it seems like the legislation is just the end goal of socialism. Rather, passing this legislation is is a step towards building a new society and changing the world. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we've seen a lot a tendency to put a lot of emphasis on, well, you know, I gotta, Hosey up to the right people, make the right deal, they can't, you know, piss off the right person because that might be right into legislation, but I think that that is really, you know, missing the uh, the forest for the
0: trees. Appreciate your comments Alex. I'm sure we'll dig into that more. Amy, why don't you uh, take a take a swing at this?
1: Yeah, I will first start off by saying that I agree very much the purpose of our electoral work should be to build um the socialist movement. Uh, and in office, socialists need to be certainly more than legislators, and they need to be organizing for that. I think the question you raised you know, are legislation organizing really opposed? I don't think they have to be. Um, and I think that's, as, as Alex said, I think that's, it depends on how we do legislation, how we view that. Um, altogether, there is that very frequent idea that we need to be ready to make compromises we need to um engage in political trading political trading um to do that um i would say my position on that is uh as as Liebnik put it uh no compromises no political trading but yeah i think that in order to get that, is kind of the next question there is our approach needs to be ongoing support our approach needs to be having that relationship and i think this will come up Um, again as well. But there is a question of how does that legislation get passed? And a lot of the legislation that we want to see, if we get it passed through just political office, through just working with other office holders, often will be watered down once it does get passed. It may be anyway, but we end up Arguing for and celebrating something as ours that isn't what we wanted in the first place isn't what workers want. So there's a there's a there's a, there's a dialectical relationship, if you will, um, between the movement outside of the office and legislator and um, socialists as elected officials, not just as legislators. Um, In order to get reforms that are really what we want to see passed, we need to have that movement outside. We need to make sure that, you know, we're not just trying to get other people to vote for it in office. We need to make sure that we're forcing them to. We're, you know, we're out there. uh, We need to get workers active politically and, you know, ready, ready to fight. Because that's the only way that one will win the reforms that we want. And two, that we'll defend them. Um, I think that's a big thing too. We look at the hit you know, we can look at the history and we can get legislation passed, but in order to make sure it doesn't get rolled back, in order to make sure that it actually gets implemented and in a way that, you know, we want, there needs to be socialists in office need to be a mouthpiece. They need to be put that, they need to argue that as well, that we can't just have the legislation. We need a movement to back it up and we need a movement to fight for it in the first place.
0: That's right. No, I think that's well said, Amy. Sam, I'll give you the last word on this question. Yeah, I want to agree with
4: Alex, just in terms of framing the problem in the first place as You know, the path towards the establishment of an independent working class party that can contest political power. Right. I think that is uh, that is the fundamental goal that we're talking about. Um, We should also note, though, broadly, I think within DSA, that specific sentence is uh, not something that you're going to find a lot of opposition to in the way that it's specifically phrased, but I think that belies a lot of differences around um, our broader strategy and orientation to existing political parties, existing political structures that happen within capitalist society. Um, I, I, th- I want to start by just noting um, as we think about what we want to do with DSA's electoral direction, I think all of us here to some extent want a pretty significant reorientation or uh, redirection of dsa's electoral work i think at the same time we should acknowledge um, a lot of the genuine tactical innovation of dsa um, that i think has been really useful in growing the movement actively under american conditions which is being able to have um, visible political campaigns that can be tied to dsa but do not require like direct party membership in DSA to be able to play a participatory and uh significant role in. Um, for me personally, I came to DSA through one of those campaigns. I was walking down the street and I saw some people getting signatures for a ballot measure campaign to provide free eviction to anybody, or free, free eviction, free representation to anybody facing uh, eviction in San Francisco. I made that typo in my original candidate statement as well. Um, and... Uh, from that was the path to actually getting involved in DSA, right? I was a I was an, a member of DSA before I became uh, as fully developed as I have become. And then through my engagement with DSA was where I started attending a capital reading group, participating in leadership, taking a stronger role in the campaigns, right? But I think we should first acknowledge that that does represent like a really positive step forward for the socialist movement in terms of like how we structure our campaigns and how we build them in a way that makes sense for um you know, working people to get involved in a in a significant way. And that being said, I think we do need to acknowledge, like everybody's been saying here, that in a lot of ways, there's what I am coming to refer to as a tactical drift in participating in electoral politics, which is that either through the underlying assumptions about how you win campaigns or through the sort of existing structures of governance, you have a sort of drift away from a more militant socialist politics. And I think to me, the goal of DSA and the goal of an organization that can structure electoral work is to build the structures to resist that drift and to be able to actually establish um, a stronger approach to socialist politics in both our campaigning and within uh, within our governance. I can talk a little bit more later on in the interview about some of the work we've been doing in San Francisco with Dean Preston. I think there's good models of different parts of this across uh, different tendencies and and chapters within DSA. Um, I think New York City, to a certain extent, has done a a pretty good job in terms of coordination, from what I can see among elected officials. But in terms of how you actually use those levers and what you're actually steering uh, our elected officials to be doing, I think there's a lot of contradictions still to work out. And I think I agree with a lot of folks on here where you know we need to acknowledge that the goal is not simply to legislate our way to socialism or even to keep these little Organizing uh, approaches as our path to specific legislative victories, but to see legislative victories as part of the broader agitational goal of the socialist movement in its current form to be able to push for a higher level of socialist consciousness, um, but do so through concrete actions of either winning specific reforms or demonstrating how the specific reforms are being blocked by uh, capitalist parties, various interests of capital across uh, across the country.
0: Thanks, Sam. And I I think you raised a really important point that, you know, while I think the tenor of most of the contributions from y'all have been highly critical of DSA's present practice of electoral politics, there are, and I 100% agree with this, there are a lot of exciting, interesting experiments. There's candidates and chapters that are increasingly pointing in a very different direction than, you know, what has been the dominant practice. And I think, You know, we'll have an opportunity a little bit to get into uh, some of the discussions, the debates in your respective chapters that that point in this direction. Philip, you wanted to jump in and raise a comment? Awesome. Just circle back. I
2: thought an interesting thing that Alex was saying about, uh, you know, and and people picked up on on the question of how much you focus on legislation. A very concrete example of socialist electoral politics, where I think it shows like more. I agree totally with Alex was saying, but also how with a different strategy, you can win big legislative gains is in Seattle how we won a $15 minimum wage. That was completely, completely ruled out. The most left-wing member of the city council in 2013 said that's never going to happen. And every single member of the city council was against it Um, when Shama Sawant was elected in 2013, 2013, and six, seven months later, it passed and the difference was not like good negotiations in city council it was that the whole that relationship of forces changed that there was a campaign that really set really captured people's imagination activated them put brought them into activity and big business was under pressure and was afraid and when those negotiations happened also that there was a threat of a ballot initiative that would be even more punitive to big business better for workers that forced a compromise so i think that's just a little bit when we accept the framework the question is yeah of course there's going to be negotiations of course there has to be legislation the question though is do we accept the existing framework of the existing balance of power within that there's not a lot the balance of power is not in our favor right now or are we is our main strategy how do we activate workers and poor and oppressed people into action and really change the whole dynamic where then it's a favorable terrain for us um and I think you know that's the main that's the the thing the prize that we have to keep our eyes on uh, in all of our activity, rather than getting lost in the details of of what's the best compromise we can make with it or a good friendly relationship with this or that, lawmakers, how do we energize our base to get politically active and move into struggle, which most which is a which is which is hard under under this system?
0: Alex, or any of y'all, do you want to quickly respond to Philip before we move on to the next question? Go, go ahead, Sam.
4: Yeah, and I think um, Philip talked a lot about. Right, the the reason why you have these members in office is not purely to you know advocate as a single member, but to advocate um, on behalf of the broader socialist movement and on behalf of a specific organization. I think um, another kind of under theorized part of uh, electoral strategy in DSA is all of the kind of ancillary aspects of. State capacity that you get this sort of like weird side door access to with electoral politics. So, for example, in San Francisco, um, supervisors have the right actually to call a hearing on any topic within the city of San Francisco and are able to grill um, administrators of the mayor's office or you know various um, parts of the city government, like pretty directly on on topics and be able to actually. Um, you know, like really make a, a visible presence for specific issues. So this is something that's happened a lot in San Francisco around um, agitating for, you know, various corruption issues in San Francisco with our mayor's office, um, advocating for, you know, uh, actually having the city follow the law with respect to its treatment of homeless people. And so there's a lot of opportunities in terms of, you know, using those aspects of sort of the, the pulpit in addition to speaking on specific pieces of legislation. Um, another piece that I think is also really important is just the ability to use these levers to hire staff that is paid for by, by the city, right? Um, This is actually a really good mechanism to be able to have uh, folks who are DSA partisans doing like full-time political work on behalf of DSA. Um, some of their interests and some of their, like what they're, expected to be working on may be different or they think there's some contradictions associated with that. But I think it's also a really good opportunity for us to build up the set of folks who are seen as doing full-time political work on behalf of DSA or the socialist movement.
0: I just add, you know, from my own experience, um, even if you're not elected, even if you don't uh, get into office, even candidacies can play a big role to build off what Philip was talking about in Seattle's winning 15. I was part of the leadership of the campaign that won $15 minimum wage in Minneapolis, the first Midwest city to do that. And it came out of my election campaign in 2013, where you know no one else was talking about it other than the fast food workers who weren't even going on strike in, in the Twin Cities yet. That, that happened a year later. But we put that as a central demand of our campaign, systematically door-knocked. I came up short um, in, a, in a very close election. Um, the Democrat beat me. <laughs> but. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, within three years, we had uh, won a majority on city council to pass 15, despite there being zero people when we started who were prepared to step into that realm. So I think a good socialist campaign that sees itself as a movement building campaign doesn't have to win to be able to put some real pressure on the ruling establishment and begin to introduce new ideas, new policy fights, raise consciousness among workers um, about what's possible. We have over 200 elected DSA members across the country, most of whom see their role maybe in the way that Alex suggested, like we want to get in there. You know, it's good to popularize socialist ideas, but we want to, you know, see what we can get past, um, see what we can legislate. that's not linked to a wider strategic vision. And while there are important exceptions, a lot of DSA members, especially at the state and federal level, end up. Um, being more accountable to the Democratic Party than they are in any specific or meaningful way to DSA or working-class movement organizations. So I want to ask each of you, if elected to the National Political Committee this August, how would you propose to confront this situation? What steps would you advocate DSA take to bring our practice more into alignment with your respective theories of socialist electoral strategy? And Why don't we uh, begin with you, Alex? Yeah.
3: So I think that most people, like most social selected officials, when they enter office, they intend to maintain a good relationship with DSA, to fight, you know, the Democratic Party establishment, to be this like radical voice for socialism. But I think that the pressures of being a socialist politician is a very conservatizing force. Um, And I know that, you know, at least in New York, you are in an environment that wants you to fail that is actively trying to get you to fail. I mean, you represent a threat to the political careers of all of your colleagues. Uh, and you. it's very much set up so that dissenting from the popular view is discouraged and that real democratic input is, is very difficult to attain. Um, so I think that it's important that going forward, DSA is able to provide the support necessary so that our elected officials can continue to be principled socialists, despite this very toxic environment, um, and I I think that it is necessary for us to uh, remain a pathway for them to be involved and accountable uh, to working class movements, um, but also be there to defend them if if they are attacked. If you know, I I just trying to imagine what it's like to be a a DSA elected official. If you're going to go on a limb. And criticize party leadership, vote against a budget. You have to expect intense repercussions. But if you know if DSA is there to provide cover from those re- from those repercussions, it makes it much more effective. Um, so. You know, I think this means that if somebody is is worried about being primary challenged they know that they have DSA there to canvass for them if they're going to have a protest against you know a, a bad uh, austerity budget they know DSA can turn out people for them and I think that it's very easy to defeat one radical individual like one person who gets elected and just you know says a lot of radical things it, it's kind of easy just to put to silence one person but if you have an elected official who has the entire movement has been entire army of socialist organizers behind
0: them, suddenly they become very powerful
3: and they become much harder uh, to, to defeat.
0: Well, Amy, let's turn to you. You know, if you were elected to the National Political Committee, how would you push DSA and what policies would you advocate the National Political Committee take up to come into more alignment with your vision of DSA's electoral strategy? Well,
1: the first thing is that we need to make sure we have relationships with elected officials, which I think is something that um I, I look forward to learning more about how this has gone in in, for example, New York. I think it's something that they've done very well with the Socialist in Office Committee. Um we've talked about having a one of those on the national level. I think that's a great idea that kind of has been floated quite for a while now. Um But that's one way to develop and maintain those relationships. Um, A lot of the time when we have those, um, you know, those breaks or those apparently kind of breaks with our politics or being more disciplined to the Democratic Party. After that, we'll have our electeds sometimes be surprised that that isn't what we wanted. Um, and so the two two things with that. One of those is maintaining that ongoing relationship. Um, but there's always going to be some amount of autonomy. Um, like we can't be there to inject ourselves in every decision that's made, um, every policy that's for or against. Um, and while it is definitely very important for us to be open and have those for debates, part of the answer, I think, is political education, um, not only for You know our own members um who just kind of rank and file members but definitely for our electeds as well um is it an expectation maybe but um that kind of speaks to what alex was saying building up what i think my caucus would call cadre candidates uh committed dsa members who will run for office um and uh you know there's definitely that that huge conservative effect part of that comes from if this is what you're doing then it kind of becomes a career very often even when we have that if even if we have that level of dsa control um then there is a conservative effect then back on dsa even because if we see that elected position as something that we need to hold regardless of what we have to do to do that then that has a conservative effect even on us. We have to then, we're bound by the logic of office as well. So I think something, another part of that is that we need to understand that we're not there to just hold the office. If we lose the office, but we still build off of it, we've still won.
0: Well, Sam, if you were elected to the NPC, what policies or approach changes would you advocate? So I like to answer this question first by maybe pushing back
4: a little bit on part of the framing where you said most of whom see their role very differently than the visions that we laid out. Probably that's true, um, but I think we also need to acknowledge that, you know, that question of most or these, like, these people believe this versus that these people believe that. Um, right now, the national organization doesn't have a very robust system of actually tracking and engaging with and like keeping up with the perspectives of the various elected officials across the country. Um, And so I think, you know, though intuitively, that's probably true. I think at the same time, we need to um, bring a greater rigor to the work that we're doing at the national level. I think, um, you know, the National Electoral Committee and the NPC itself has been pretty over focused on uh, on election as part of the a focus for electoral politics with a, a lot of underdevelopment of the actual guidance from the national organization about how to actually govern as a socialist. Um, I think this applies at the local level in terms of more opportunity for um, providing guidance to chapters about how to relate to elected officials in a more robust way. Um, I think this has happened at the national level with a lot of uh, opportunities even to be meeting with DSA uh, endorsed or member represent representatives in Congress um, going unfilled by the NPC. There were requests to meet with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign team that didn't get filled by the NPC. Um, I think with the Bowman uh, affair, it's very true that the votes that he did are unacceptable for a member of Congress to be uh, making with regards to Palestinian liberation. At the same time, I think the fact that Um, there's such an underdeveloped apparatus for proactively connecting with uh, representatives and providing them, for example, briefs from our international committee on the right approach to really important issues of uh, international relations or just general opportunities for our elected officials to be opposing U.S. militarism and imperialism. Um, We don't really do that in a robust way. So yes, of course, I think we need to be talking about accountability in terms of responses to decisions that we don't like. Um, But I do think that there's a lot more that we need to be doing in terms of proactive engagement with our elected officials, um, that I'll note again, right, you'll hear that in abstract from a lot of folks across the political spectrum in DSA. Um, But because of different folks, political perspectives on why we run candidates, what their goal should be, how closely connected either to DSA's political apparatus or just to actually legislating as a socialist, they should be... um, there are political reasons why those uh, apparatuses haven't been built out. And so I think we really need to be able to invest in building robust communication mechanisms with elected officials. Um, I'll also note um, even where there are these robust uh, mechanisms or or stronger mechanisms, uh, even if people are dedicated socialists, if they have different ideas about what being a dedicated socialist or member of DSA means, then the decisions they make may not be those that folks who want a different approach to electoral politics will agree with. Even if it is DSA members making decisions about how DSA elected should be going, that doesn't mean that they're gonna be the right political decisions. And so I think another thing that is really important to me Is for members who want a different path forward in our electoral strategy um, to be able to actually assert themselves as a counterbalance in those campaigns, in those structures that we're creating at the local or national level, um, to be actually a force for a stronger political perspective. And I think as we... uh, have a real opportunity at the national level to establish a national political committee who's gonna take these questions more seriously and be advocating for a much stronger political and socialist orientation for our elected leadership, We're going to face a lot of contradictions even structurally within dsa itself right without taking seriously the composition of the national electoral committee who's on it um, and also even separate from who's on it how we engage with them and how we actually engage with the people who are going to be doing the direct connection with chapters on these questions like we can't just be doing it um from the npc and expect the right results we're going to be facing a lot of contradictions a lot of resistance um at the national level and I think folks who are running for the NPC um, need to be really prepared to take those questions seriously as we think about what we want to build forward and for those who are not running to NP- for NPC um to be developing themselves to be able to step into those positions so that we can actually have like a, a more robust apparatus of folks making the decisions day-to-day that are the sort of decisions that we want socialists to be making with uh, the levers that we have
0: thanks Sam Philip, I'll give you last word on this
2: okay well, I I was able to um, was one of the co-authors of a resolution for the convention that hopefully we're going to be discussing. at The ban- convention that I think is very it basically sums up a lot of what my thinking is about what this uh, the new NPC will need to do on some of these electoral questions. And it's about the resolution is towards a uh, party like electoral strategy. Um, and I think one aspect of that is what sort of came up earlier, I think we need some, we need to have different types of endorsements. I don't think it works to have a one size fits all endorsement strategy, um, where I think we have, we can have a what we currently have, where it's, um, we can endorse. I think it makes sense to maintain our existing endorsement policies and we can, we're free to endorse DSA members who are running, but also endorse other socialists and left-wing candidates who we want to we want to signal and politically communicate our support, encourage people to vote for, and it can go beyond. That. It can be an active campaign with DSA's own message and material for that candidate, like we did DSA for Bernie. Um, but you know, uh, but not a DSA member. But I think then there's a different expect. I think we need to establish more of a party like structure and expectation and commitment for what should be our priority of find recruiting and running our own. DSA candidates who are going to run to represent DSA, which I think is sorely uh, lacking. But I think the starting point of that is to have some clarity within our own ranks about what does that entail. What do we expect if you're going to represent DSA, and can we recruit candidates who will take that on? And I think some of the key highlights is that is, I think basic things is that they they need to run explicitly as socialists in their public facing messaging. Um that that's that's a that's a that's a that's a, a, a basic requirement that they commit that if the, uh, if more than one um, DSA representative is elected to form a socialist caucus and orient those caucuses towards conflict with the capitalist Democratic Party establishment and, and, of course, the Republicans. And that means also voting as a bloc and having their own common identity with common events, public events, and using their office together to speak on behalf of the socialist movement, that they're active in DSA and they use their campaigns to promote uh, DSA and encourage our supporters to join. Um, and then I think other, finally, some other key things is a commitment to meet quarterly with the DSA leadership. And that depends what, if they're running in a local race with the local chapter, federal race, obviously with the NPC or its representatives. Um, and then finally, the key thing, we a key thing we have is that we have to establish certain t- Basically, basic, specifically uh, because of the experience of the last two years, some basic red lines of some uh, and these have to be obviously can be changed with experience. But we thought a starting point from the last two years is like basic red lines that are core uh, principles that cannot be violated is a commitment not to to vote against measures, to vote against measures that are going to expand or strengthen the police or other forces of the repressive capitalist state. To never to uh, be against any restriction on the right of workers to strike, um, again against all forms of uh, racial and national and gender oppression, and to refuse to vote for military budgets, the war machine, or military aid to U.S. client states. Um, and and then in terms of implementation, I really agree with Alex that we need to support our. It's not just about holding them accountable and beating them up. We need to support our electeds, and it's it's completely. Few, uh, hopeless to think that one person or a few people are going to be able to take this on on their own. They need the backing of our whole organization. So I, I think it's really shocking that the previous NPC never met with the with the members of Congress. I think we need to set up a, a, a federal socialist in office committee, like a socialist in Congress committee, that meets regularly and that has staff allocated to it to share ideas, to coordinate, to get political assistance, but also to challenge them um, and give them feedback when they take they, they violate core socialist principles. And obviously do that in a constructive way in good faith, but also be prepared to do that in open meetings and open statements if those those discussions have their uh, limits.
0: Well, I wanted to dive a little bit more into some examples um, that I know each of you have real experience in your chapters um, or through the discussions within your caucuses um, that brings, shed some light on this. I wanna start with you, Amy. I know you and Marxist Unity Group, if you've already mentioned here, put a lot of emphasis on the party question, on the need to rudder DSA's electoral work and the goal of building a new mass working class party. But, you know, one of the most defining experiences of most DSA members of the last few years has been the two campaigns that Bernie Sanders ran on the Democratic Party ticket for the presidency. And many people um, within DSA will argue that uh, you know, they gave, Bernie Sanders gave the corporate Democrats a real run for their money, and that is evidence that the realignment strategy is is a far more realistic and, to a certain degree, is working. So how do you answer that argument?
1: Well, I think uh, the argument for that, for uh, the realignment strategy, is an interesting one, um, because I actually draw the opposite conclusion. And I think most observers of the Sanders campaign did draw the opposite conclusion. Um, in both cases, what we saw was, you know, Sanders ran kind of an insurgent campaign on the Democratic ballot um, ballot line um, in democratic primaries. Um, and what we saw as for, as thanks for that is we saw the anti-democratic nature of the Democratic Party uh, come down on him hard. Uh, in every case, it you know, the Democratic establishment, forced him out because um even policies like medicare for all is just too much of a threat to the capitalist establishment for even the democratic party to tolerate i think sometimes to use the democratic line for for ballot access um while still being you know uh very openly socialist and still putting forward a a very openly socialist message um, as opposed to being a Democrat, you know, uh, I think that's still very, I think that can be very useful because especially in, in states where this isn't the case in Washington, but in a lot of states where it's really hard to get on the ballot if you're not already there. But yeah, I think another thing from the, the Sanders experience is this goes both, This I've seen that again, seen this argued both ways, especially very recently. Um, but one thing that Bernie, I, I think is a, a strong example of is political independence, uh, being useful and popular and putting politics forward saying that, you know, we're against the capitalist class. We are for the workers. We're not your, you're right. We're not, you know, we're your run of the mill Democrats. We're going to fight with them. That can be, Something that's really galvanizing. He didn't win. I think uh, a lot of people would very reasonably argue that it's debatable whether he actually ran or he should have won or not. But beside the point, he didn't win. But he's still one of the best things to happen to the socialist movement. Um, still uh, was a major movement builder, and that I think is a good example for what we can do uh, with electoral politics: win or lose.
0: Alex, um, I know you've drawn a lot of lessons from your experience serving on New York City DSA's Socialist and Office Committee. Um, I think it was between twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. Is that right? On the face of it, you know, from what I can see and what I've read, New York City DSA Socialist and Office Committee is a model for how a lot of DSA chapters and the and at the national level should operate. It was established in twenty twenty. Um, the ISO brings together New York City DSA steering committee and working group leaders with DSA's elected state senators and assembly members, and the eight DSA state representatives on the ISO or SIO are expected to vote and act in a unified block whenever the group takes collective decisions. I saw this quote from Zoran Mamdami, New York DSA state assembly member, he said, quote, We have created a decision-making process by which we could air out a question, whether it be a legislation or whatever else, or endorsements, and then have a structure to debate and then vote internally to figure it out. Where do we lie on this as a committee? And how do we ensure that we move as a collective in the midst of individual dissent? But in that same article where Zorn was quoted, I don't have the quote uh, handy, but I know Julius Salazar also said... You know, and sometimes when we don't agree, the SIO does not take a decision, and members are free to vote or act as they see fit. and I, I think that sort of opens up a space where I know you're you came out of that experience with a lot of criticism, despite you know the ostensibly good structure. So tell us a little more about that.
3: Yeah, no for sure. I mean, I think just to start off, I, I feel like I, I am someone who has been very critical of the SAO. And I don't often say that. I think it is probably one of the, the biggest and most exciting electoral achievements of the socialist movement to have, you know, eight people who are meeting weekly, who are, you know, at least attempting to operate as a socialist bloc, whose campaign staff, whose government staff are almost entirely DSA members. And I feel like I don't, I want, I want to take some time to recognize- that It is it's impressive. Hard, it's very impressive. It's hard to, to make that happen. Um, but, you know, it's definitely not perfect. And, and I think that you definitely touched on that, um, where I I think that it, it, in the past it has lacked discipline. Um, it, it has a lacked uh, the ability to operate as a block. Um, but, but I think that, that you know, my, term, my time on the SIO um, has exposed some other things to me as well. Um, and I think one thing is that there really lacks a long-term goal of our electoral politics. Like, we don't, you know, are we trying to just elect enough people to pass our legislation? Are we trying to get a majority of DSA members in the state house? Like, do we want to run and win like the governor's seat? Like, there is no clear, like, when will we have enough people? Like, what do we do next? Like, those questions aren't really answered. Um, The 1234 plan was proposed at our last convention. To answer that question, which would have said that the goal of our electoral work is to build a party-like structure and eventually break from the Democratic Party. Um, and the one two three four plan was defeated. Um, and which, you know, is, you know, that's fine. There's a democratic decision. But what was frustrating to me was that there was no alternative. People said, well, we don't want to do the one, two, three, four plan, but they don't want to say what they 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 do wanna do. So um, it, it makes it difficult to, to really strategically plan, like create a long-term socialist plan if we don't know what our goal is. Um, and you know, I, I think that also like what's been alluded to before, uh, there's an overly insider approach that, that has been taken. Like we all know the, the inside outside strategy where we have people on the inside who, who agitate for our priorities internally, but then we provide pressure um, through outside organizing. And I think that there's been a lot of discussion about how can we, you know, make sure that we're making the right deals, we're not, you know, pissing off the, the wrong person uh, to get our things passed. But th- there's not a lot of um, discussion about the external factors. And I think that we should recognize that, you know, our DSA members in office have that their opponents are the Republicans, but also more powerfully, their opponents are capital, that no one else is is really facing. But I think oftentimes their response to to being attacked by capital, to being attacked by the Speaker of the Assembly, by party leadership, is to befriend them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's to try to avoid that from happening. And, and I don't think that they utilize the power of DSA, of, you know, an organization that has tens of thousands of people, the power of New York City DSA, which has elected eight people or seven people and one upstate. I, I feel like that's, that's not often Utilize.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it will really help our listeners if you give an example. I know in our previous discussion, you talked about the example, and I think you wrote about this previously too of Julia Salazar making a decision not mm-hmm. to endorse another DSA candidate. Um, mm-hmm. To me, that was really illuminating on sort of how this dynamic plays out in, in concrete terms. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Uh, Yeah,
3: I mean, there's a a policy in the New York State Senate where you don't endorse against incumbents, um, which is deeply undemocratic. And uh, DSA had challenged, had uh, had a challenger, David Alexis, against a almost comically corrupt state senator, Kevin Parker, who you should look at his Wikipedia page. He's like assaulting multiple people. He's just like this very comically corrupt person. And the leadership of the state Senate said to Julia Salazar, you can't endorse the DSA challenger. Like, that's unacceptable. And if you do, there there will be consequences in which we will torpedo your bill, good cause eviction, which would really strengthen tenant protections. And this really created a very big controversy on the SAO. Um, I wrote an article in the call, the the Bread and Roses publication about it, um, um, ultimately saying that Julia should have endorsed David Alexis, despite the pressure that she was facing, despite the threats and that, you know, she, essentially she made a judgment call where she said good cause eviction is more important than this particular bill. I think that that was the wrong move. I, I don't think that we should really accept those threats at all. And I think what she should have done is said, gone publicly and said, I'm being threatened. My legislation, which will help thousands of tenants, is being threatened. I am I think you should have organized you know, a protest in front of um, the Speaker's office. And then that is where really DSA came in. Where if she put out a public statement, we would have been right there behind her. You know, if, if she had held a protest, we probably could have got hundreds of people out People out there. I think that is really how we um, utilize the power of DSA. That's really how we create a partnership um, with our elected officials. Um, but, but also something that I also wrote on in, in that article is that the real lack of Transparency that went on, and, and and part of the reason why that article was very controversial in New York City was because these conversations are intended to happen behind closed doors. They weren't intended to really have this public um, input. You
0: mean closed and doors I, within DSA is what you're saying? Yeah,
3: within DSA. That the decisions of you know who like you know the the SIO is very much a closed committee. It's not really something that um, where public input is welcomed on decisions like this. You know, there there's a, a cone of silence, as, as some people have said. And and I think that these politics should happen in a glass house where everyone has the opportunity to uh, for input, where these decisions that, you know, we're not going to not tell people out of fear of retaliation. We are going to discuss this with their membership. You know, it doesn't have to be every minute decision, you know, should not be discussed by everybody. But I think major decisions like who a candidate's going to endorse, you know, whether or not, you know, the strategy around a major bill is absolutely something that should have the the Democratic input. And I think if we don't, if we have these, you know, closed off discussions, what ends up happening is that the elected officials are set the political priorities for the movement.
0: Where in reality, I think the movement should set the political priorities for the elected officials well said um philip i'm hoping you can draw out some of the experience of seattle dsa's electoral work
2: i think dsa uh people don't like to no one wants to be, uh, be the messenger of bad news but i think dsa is in crisis um the last two years we've seen us a, a fall in our membership uh, chapter participant mem- activity in chapters and participation is falling um, and I think the kind of electoral problems we're talking about the most it's not just on the congressional level. What Alex just talked about in New York is very is very real. And that's happening elsewhere as well. But obviously, Congress is the highest profile. And the fact that you have, you know, the votes to fund the Israeli military, uh, the votes to to ban a railway worker strike. These are and and more than that, those are just, I think, the most glaring examples of. But there's been a process where. the the DSA members in Congress have moved from being uh, really insurgent oppositional forces when they first were elected to more and more. It's not like I'm not saying it's not black and white. It's not it's not 100 percent, but more and more being incorporated into the establishment and taking a less confrontational approach. I think that's really demoralizing to our members and to the left um, and as part of this crisis. So the point I want to get at is I just think um, the reason I'm motivated to run for the NPC is I think we need a serious course correction. I think if we continue on the in the current trajectory, we face a real risk that DSA um, might not just be a continuation of a kind of slow crisis we're in, but we could see a real intensification of that. And I think there's a need to really turn things around. Um, and just one example, uh, I, would, I could give more of this on a national level is just with like the railway vote that Seattle DSA was involved in. Is you know I don't expect miracle like the, it's not like the NPC I don't expect miracles that the NPC could just on two levels I don't expect miracles I don't think if all four DSA members voted against the railway strike that would have changed the result I mean the railway bill it still would have passed and the strike would have been banned but at minimum our four members in Congress could have made crystal clear this is not this is not what we want and we stand with the workers and we will never uh, try to use state power to block your ability to go on strike that that's a that's the bar we could have cleared right and say if you're angry about that dsa is an alternative and our socialist caucus is an alternative the progressive caucus might vote for that but we're not but then also i don't expect miracles from the npc maybe the four mem- the three out of the four members in congress were going to do that but what could the npc do i think the npc response was really um uh was really inadequate i mean there was a statement that was sent out and tweeted which was good but what we in Seattle DSA did is we were demanding and campaigning that the NPC can be, have a public town hall where we invite the members of Congress, all four, including Rashida Tlaib, who did the right thing and voted against that, but also the three Congress uh, members who voted for the ban, come and speak to the DSA members and explain why you did this. And then I'll have the NPC and other representatives of DSA uh, elected representatives explain our disagreements. Let's have a real debate and back and forth. And that's part of that democratic atmosphere. I think Alex. Was talking about where there are differences. Let's not let's not uh, 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 brush them under the rug. Let's have if we're going to have a democratic organization, it's not. We need to have these things discussed and debated. Hopefully, through that, electeds' views can be changed. But also through that, maybe they have things that we, members don't know about. There should be a real dialogue and debate. And I think that was damaging. That the NPC sort of had, I think had the desire to just sort of move on and get get over this embarrassment. But I think that sort of reinforces the damage and i think we need a different policy on the npc
0: i think that was really helpful philip sam i'm gonna i was gonna cue you to talk about your experience in san francisco which you're uh absolutely welcome to i know you all have had some debates and discussions recently and changed your electoral policy and some interesting experience with um dean preston's two campaigns but so talk about that If you want, or you can do what Philip did and just talk about whatever the hell you want. If you think it's going to be more interesting for our listeners, go for it. Yeah, maybe I'll do both. And who's going to stop me? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think just sort of building off of what Philip's
4: talking about, right, before I get into some of the work locally, just talking about the role nationally, um, you know, I think ultimately, national leadership of DSA exists to kind of be doing various levels of leadership, right? So I think there's a lot of work that the national leadership can be doing to assert a better approach to national politics, which is what Philip's talking about, right? The NPC are basically the only... Part of the organization that really has the mandate and the structure to be able to coordinate federal electeds at a higher level. And I think, you know, it's very clear that there's a lot more work to be done there, right? There's a lot more work in basic coordination. There's a lot more work in um, political debate and uh, visibility, inviting uh, members of Congress actively to participate in DSA's internal structures. Like, you know, I, I think in general, with a lot of these things around like better approaches to national, um, th- there's a lot of things that we intuitively feel need to be happening with like the direction we're going to go with our elected officials and you know managing staff for the organization like there's a lot of things that I hear a lot about in debates around DSA where I think it first starts with asking and I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of providing active uh invitations and guidance to our elected officials at the federal level to you know be able to develop a a stronger approach politically Um, i think you know in addition to the work of coordinating federal politics the npc is also really responsible for like guiding chapters in their engagement with Uh, Elected work at their levels, right? And I think, you know, being able to tie that work together to be able to talk about, you know, for example, when DSA is going to be doing a big push um, behind ending the blockade on Cuba, I think there's a really big opportunity there to, for example, run a sort of coordinated federal, national, uh, federal, local campaign, right? Having uh, federal electeds talking about, you know, an upcoming bill or an upcoming, you know, public opportunity to be opposing the blockade alongside work to have, you know, local officials um, being passing resolutions in their in their local areas. I think I saw some really good work from the IC on that, and I think that's a good model to continue to uh, develop that that approach. Um, I'll, I'll quickly talk a little bit about some of the work that um, we've been doing locally. Um, you know, I think thinking about the role of socialist electeds, there's some times where, you know, just... With changing the balance of power, um, finding these moments of uh of what uh China Mieville says is the fracture and traction of uh politics, uh, you can actually have just really good outcomes. So, um, an example here being in the beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, Dean Preston was a really visible force behind um advocating for some really strong rent rent control and other uh, tenant protections. Right, there's a a specific moment of crisis that really socialist politics are the best equipped to be able to agitate for proposed concrete solutions and, you know, get folks on board to realize like, oh, it's an emergency and it's the socialist movement that is making the most clear prescriptions to help working people. So I think there's some work that we've been doing locally just through the like normal functions of legislation that um, that dean's been doing that I think are really cool. I want to talk about a couple other things that um, the position of supervisor in San Francisco has been able to provide. So I talked about one of those before, which was the hearings. So um, through the ability that supervisors have to call a public hearing on essentially any topic with related to uh, public governance, Dean's been really able to uh, provide like public insight and public visibility to a lot of really bad things happening in the in the city of San Francisco. So this is um, hearings that he was able to call around evictions of folks in permanent and supportive housing provided by the city who are being evicted by the city of San Francisco. Um, he was able to hold a hearing on copaganda and the way that the mayor's office works with the san francisco police department to be able to change the media narrative in favor of police and against working people um and he was able to uh in a moment where it was discovered that the mayor was actually requiring for people who run who uh are applying or being appointed to positions that she holds appointments for to uh, deliver an undated resignation letter that she can deliver at any point that she wants to have essentially force them to resign without any formal accountability process and so um, we were actually able to hold a hearing in order to like call attention to this and actually end the process um another example of how that fit into uh the broader legislative strategy i can talk about with our um uh, vacancy, rent uh, residential vacancy campaign. So uh, for those who don't know, as part of People First San Francisco, which was the ballot measure slate campaign that, San, that DSA San Francisco ran in the November 2022 election, one of our measures was a campaign to win uh, a very large uh, residential vacancy tax in the city of San Francisco. Um, and the process of that, I think, was a really good example of coordination and communication between uh, Dean and the supervisor's office and DSA San Francisco. Cisco outside, you know, I think sort of the socialist alternative work uh, around the tax Amazon measure, I think, is a good example of kind of an outside to inside strategy of being able to use outside pressure to affect the legislative uh, agenda. I think of the work with the vacancy tax as an inside to outside strategy. So what we were actually able to do is first call a hearing, as I said before, call a hearing to make this uh, this notice of uh, a huge number of vacancies, I believe it was like 50,000 residential vacancies in the city through this report so that that number is now stuck in everybody's head. Um, Also, through using the the tools of legislative office, Dean was actually able to work with the city attorney to draft a ballot measure to uh, tax those residential vacancies. So he was able to use the city's attorney's office. Instead of having to pay a private lawyer $30,000, $40,000, we're able to actually use the city attorney to draft that measure and then put it forward as a ballot measure, which was then part of DSA San Francisco's slate campaign. And so then once we started gathering signatures for it we were able to actually talk to folks and be like, hey, uh, tax big landlords who leave apartments empty. And they go, oh my gosh, I saw this thing in the news about there's 55,000 vacancies, right? So we were able to sort of, uh, you know, hijack the media narrative a little bit and actually use those levers to be able to, like directly put parts of our campaign messaging in people's uh, in people's minds. Um, and so I think, you know, there's also a lot of opportunities, not just to use legislative office as an opportunity to, you know, get specific outcomes within the, within the legislative process, but especially where ballot measures are present or just opportunities to support stuff like union campaigns. I think you can actually use those levers of office to like, in addition to passing legislation, have like these tangible methods of providing support for the socialist movement. I think that's definitely another thing that it's going to be really important as we figure out a, a stronger approach to how we work with socialists in office that we're able to, you know, really get a grasp of.
0: Well, I think it's been a great discussion. Um, It's gone long, so I'm going to give you each a very brief, uh, you know, try to keep it a one minute opportunity to kind of sum up your views uh, with the national convention coming up in August. Uh, A lot's at stake. A lot of people feel, you know, as Philip mentioned earlier, that there's been a real challenge uh, facing DSA, a, a decline in membership, a certain sense of you know, maybe a slow moving crisis. Um, and there's a lot of ideas about how to how to move things in a different direction, the electoral question, being a prominent, but only one uh, of them. So in a word, what would you say is at stake at this convention? And what do you want to see come out on the other side? I'll give it to Alex first. Uh, yeah,
3: I mean, I, I definitely think that DSA is at like a breaking point, And I think that this convention is going to be immensely consequential. And I think that it will be the difference between DSA being a socialist organization that really combated capital and really you know won victories for the working class, or just another footnote in socialist history that had a few years where they had some power, but ultimately couldn't get it together. And I think that our electoral politics will be a big part of that. Um, you know, just like to respond to a few things, I, to what Sam said a few questions ago, I agree that it is very important that we be constantly communicating with our federal elected officials what the DSA position is. I think we have to be make very clear um, that this is a the socialist position, and either you you follow that or, or you don't. And it's important that that Socialist position be something that provides an alternative to the Democratic Party that people see DSA people see socialism as an alternative to the Democrats um, in a way that
0: we can ultimately build a a brighter future. Thanks so much, Philip, go ahead.
2: Well, building off that, um, I I think I, I think the convention is a really critical opportunity for us. It's a strength of DSA that we're a Democratic membership organization and we can come together and have a real debate and vote on these issues. But I think we really need to seize that opportunity to turn things around. And what I would wanna build and what Alex was just saying, we have to be seen that there's a real problem that we're associated with the Democratic Party, given that they're in power. Uh, right now, the majority of working people are seeing their, their wages falling in real terms with inflation. We're seeing people are not happy with the direction of the country. And the Democratic Party is the ones who are primarily leading the federal government, and we're, I think, way too associated with that. So I, I think a real, we need a real discussion at the convention about the 2024 election, the presidential election, and where does DSA stand? I think it's an opportunity, actually, for DSA to really uh, clarify and distinguish itself more. I don't think we should allow Joe Biden to be an albatross around our neck. Obviously, we want to see the Republicans defeated, but there's an amendment that uh, uh, myself and others have put forward saying this convention is going to vote on Uh, that we will not be endorsing Joe Biden. We obviously recognize the danger of the far right and we want to build independent working class movements against the far right. Um, But that we also, you know, it's Joe Biden's policies and the Democrats sort of corporate Wall Street policies that are creating the ground for Trump or DeSantis to have a credible chance of winning because there's popular discontent. So I'm curious, I mean, I'd be curious what other people think about that, but I think that would be a really good signal to of a change in course of DSA to come out as have the uh, have the courage and audacity to be a bold opponent to um, obviously the billionaires, but also the Democratic Party um, and Joe Biden in, in, a, in an election that really matters and that are going to dominate, I think, social movements and the labor movement and discussions in the working class the next uh, next year and a half.
0: Sam, what's your last word? Yeah,
2: so,
4: um, you know, I, I agree with folks here that the upcoming convention is a really consequential moment for DSA. We've sort of structured a democratic process in which we have a really consequential moment for DSA every two years, kind of no matter what. Um, but this one, I think, is a, a particularly strong example, especially given, I think, a lot of the particular conditions of last year, um, or last convention, meant that the organization wasn't really able to hammer out its politics, especially through its leadership election. There's a lot of driving folks out on personal grounds and not political grounds that happen. I think that was really unfortunate. Um, I'm really looking forward to being able to actually have the organization hash out its politics, um, both through the resolution process, but also through the leadership process of elections this cycle. Um, we know that, you know you can pass good resolutions, you can pass a good set of uh, directions for DSA at the convention level. But ultimately, if you have a leadership who's going to be hostile to those resolutions or hostile to executing on them, um, it's not really going to matter that much. And so you know, I think as folks are thinking about what needs to happen in order to affect the change that we want in DSA, I also am really uh, pushing folks to be thinking very clearly about leadership of the organization right um being able to actually have folks stepping forward to lead dsa that are able to embody um, the political directions that we need and actually execute on the decisions made by the convention and with respect to specific um electoral resolutions my caucus hasn't made decisions on which ones we support we're also looking forward to amendments to the national electoral committee resolution that i know are likely to be coming down the pike um but for the for the election of the NPC, uh, Red Star has been putting forward what we call the NPC Leadership Pledge, which is a pledge um, for folks who are running for the NPC to be able to sign on to join us in supporting the establishment of a robust and rigorous socialist democratic culture. It's a nine-point pledge with a lot of prescriptions that we think are, you know, should be basic alignment around how the NPC should be functioning, how it should be acting, both organizationally and politically, in order to um, advance a, a strong socialist agenda. That being said, uh, it's not actually a consensus, and I think that's um, I think that's worth noting. Um, we've done our first round of announcements. I'm excited to say that uh, Amy uh, Amy W here on the call has already been announced as signing on. Um, we have some conversations in progress, commitments that we haven't announced or uh, commitments that we still haven't gotten from folks. So I'm really excited and hope everybody else on this call here is going to be able to uh, join us in committing. Um, but you know, I think for us as we look into the the leadership election, we should really be taking seriously whether folks are um, going to be able to stand behind, uh, you know, actually not just embodying the will of the convention abstractly or saying, I'll do whatever the convention says, but actually staking out strong positions for how they're going to use the leadership of DSA to guide it in a, uh, in a more, uh, socialist and a, a more bold direction.
0: Amy, I'll give you last word.
1: All right. Thank you. Uh, so you asked in a word, um, what's at stake? What do we hope comes out of it? Democracy um and democracy means a lot of things it means not just having the opportunity to vote every two years um or every four in the case of the presidency um and every two you know in in dsa of course um it means having information it means being able to make informed decisions um I this i thought it was really exciting hearing about um hearing from sam about the kind of uh hearing process that they have in san francisco um, I've I know I've seen it referred to as interpolation, but I don't think we use that word in the U.S. much. So you know, but um, that's a really exciting ability. That's the kind of thing I think definitely socialists should be doing in office. Is we should be um, getting getting in there, getting information that we wouldn't have otherwise, or wouldn't be able to compile otherwise. Sometimes um, I want to see socialists leaking classified documents that tell us things that uh, we need to know about the state. Um, On that same thing, talking internally in DSA, uh, there have been important things that have been... There have been important conversations that have been concealed. Uh, We heard a lot from the NPC and, and again, the Bowman Affair. We heard a lot about how, well, these were commitments made and they need to be executed on, but we can't tell you what the commitments are, um, which was uh, just a very strange thing to interact with. And uh, Alex speaking about like the SIO as well, being very kind of closed thing, something that you don't really talk much about outside of it or that information doesn't really flow into and out of. Um, Ultimately, that's a big part of democracy, making sure that everyone has the information, uh, knows where to go to uh, give feedback or give influence, and also where to go to find out what's going on with the SA, with the nation, uh, in, in the broader sense, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, um, a big part of good governance, which I really appreciate Red Star having, uh, such a, such a focus on, um, comrade Sam here. Um, that's very excited, uh, to work together on that. And I think part of that is throwing open the books. Um, let's make sure that members are able to know what's going on in DSA. Uh, I think that's an important part of democracy that is often underappreciated, maybe.
0: Well, Amy, Sam, Alex, Philip, thank you all so much for joining this discussion. I think it was really thought provoking. I think our listeners will enjoy uh, hearing your perspective as we head in to the National DSA Convention this August. So thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Glad to join. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. See you all in Chicago. That was Sam Heftluthi of Red Star, Alex Pelletieri with Bread and Roses, Amy Wilhelm with Marxist Unity Group, and Philip Locker with Reform and Revolution. They are candidates running for DSA's National Political Committee, which will be elected the August National Convention of DSA. If you like this podcast and want it to continue please consider becoming a monthly sustainer of Seattle DSA. To maintain my part-time position as Seattle DSA's communications organizer, as well as Guillermo Zazueta's part-time position as a chapter organizer, we need to raise Seattle DSA's income by over 1,500 a month. Go to seattledsa.org podcast today to contribute what you can. Again, that is seattledsa.org Backslash podcast. This was the fourth episode of Social Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. Thanks so much to Jason Corey for mixing this episode, to Luke Wigren and Charlie Spears for their ongoing technical support. I'm your host, Ty Moore. Thanks for listening.